Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions uh, podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and I'm here today with a special guest host who has been on once before. Just once. I didn't think Just I was going to be invited back. We had a <laughs> But here we are. But here we are. And that was mostly because of what happened before we were on That's air. That's right. It took us about an hour to get going. What happened on air. So, That's right. So you're, you're covered. <laughs> Thank you're you, You're good Todd. to go. Uh, and it's we a have start. a wonderful guest on today uh, right. who I've already, um, yeah, I don't know. I made him sign books. Now, I have never made anyone sign books that's been on this podcast before. And you know we've had really wonderful guest on the podcast, uh, and I've never done that. And I did that today because we have Andrew Peterson, and you're a really big deal in my house. I have four children, <laughs> uh, and your um, Wing Feather saga books have been uh, consumed. Thank you. In in uh, short order, uh, and then reconsumed. Once again, we're a bunch Thank of you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so do you want to introduce our guest today? Yes. I'm honored to introduce our guest who is here in the studio with us, which we love. So Andrew Peterson is an award-winning singer-songwriter and an author. He's based here in Nashville, Tennessee. He's been married for 24 years to his wife, Jamie, with whom they have three children. And over the last 20 years, Andrew has performed thousands of concert concerts, published four novels, released 10 albums, taught college and seminary classes on writing, founded a nonprofit ministry for Christian in the arts and executive produced a film. I'm exhausted just thinking about all those things. But this is all but, great stuff. He right. Is, he is like the, uh, I know when you say renaissance, you think like multiple disciplines. Right. Well, even multiple disciplines within the arts. That's right. I would say this is the guy. That's um, right. Because uh, the, I think one of the most uh, impressive things that you, that you do, Andrew, is you are a constant and consistent producer creator mm-hmm. of uh, of all kinds of different uh, media, all kinds of different art. And the the big thing is um, one of the biggest things that you do that I'm aware of is the symposium. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk a little bit about the symposium? When you say symposium, do you mean the rabbit room? Yes. The community? The, the, uh, the, the, yeah, really, sure. that whole community and when you gather everybody together for, mm. I will say the name wrong. It's okay. What? I don't know. <laughs> what are you going to say? Hutchmoot, yes. Hutchmoot. Hutchmoot. Hutchmoot, yes. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so, so the rabbit room was a, I don't know, about 12 years ago was when I um, bought the domain name without mm-hmm. really knowing what I was going to do with it. But the rabbit room was the name of the back room in the pub in Oxford where Lewis and Tolkien and their buddies would get together. Right. Mm. The Inklings. And so when I was in Oxford, I was like, cool. I didn't realize this room had a name and uh, bought the domain name and thought there was just something about it that intrigued right. me. And and the thing that got my attention the most was when I was there was when I began to kind of reimagine how I thought of what that community was like. So right. when a lot of us picture Lewis and Tolkien and Charles Williams and them, you picture this pretty stodgy like, oh, but the Greek word means blah, 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 you know. <laughs> but they were meeting in a pub, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't like as I don't, I just have this hunch that it wasn't <laughs> as stodgy as you. I think they were mainly <laughs> it's buddies. quite as formal. <laughs> That's right. right. That's they right. were probably just friends. And yeah. it was like the books were an excuse to get together. Yeah. And uh, 
And the cool thing was the friendships um, flourished in that setting, but also the, the the work they did flourished. Like the Narnia books and the the Lord of the Rings books, they they were we owe uh, like those things are uh, a result of these friendships, you know. Um, and so immediately I thought of Nashville. Right. I was like, oh, that's what happened here when I moved here. Not like any of us in Nashville are as smart as those guys, but there was something about gathering to to write songs and to make a record because you believe that this is what God has called you to. You believe in the power of story and art uh, right. as a as a way as a means of kind of like waking people up to the beauty of the gospel. And then these friendships are like uh kind of go hand in hand with what you're doing. So it was this realization that art nourishes community and community mm -hmm. nourishes art, that there's this symbiotic relationship. And I was like, that's what happened with the Inklings. Those guys were buddies and they made, wrote good books. And so there's like, the two are kind of tied together. So the rabbit room was like a flag in the ground. It was like, mm -hmm. let me just uh, create a blog where me and my friends can not only have an excuse to be friends and hang out, but also kind of in the name of um, learning our craft a little better. And that was the, that was the beginning of the idea. And then it flowered into a bunch of other stuff. So when you look at the, uh, you, you mentioned the, you know, the symbiotic relationship of those people, how do you see that played out even across, in, across the arts? Because if you look, you're a, um, a musician and a writer, and not just a songwriter, a, a book writer. I referenced the Wing Feather Saga earlier, and I would say uh, there's a series of four books. If you like Lewis, if you like Tolkien, mm -hmm. then you're going to like those books. You should check yeah. those out. Uh, and they're not, you know, I mentioned uh, they're popular with my children, um, and they really are, but yeah. they're also But I read really them too, and I loved them. With adults. Thank so, yeah. 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 yeah, adults want, can appreciate them. I just want them. people to, to understand that. Especially the footnotes. But you, <laughs> That's my favorite you. part. You cannot skip the footnotes <laughs> Thank in them. You. But you also, uh, you know, you also draw. Uh, we were talking about bees earlier, uh -huh. and I was asking you very specific questions about what kind of bees you run. Uh -huh. um, you know, uh, so it, it, you, have, uh, you have a lot of... Uh, things that seem to overlap. What? How important is that, or or what have you learned through that? How those things kind of feed each other. One and two. Um, going back to what you've created with the Rabbit Room, how sure. have you seen that help you flourish and other people flourish? Well, that that's a, a good question. The 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 cool thing is, I, I was just rearranging um, the books in my office. I'm kind of a book nerd. Have way too many. Uh, uh, so so many that my wife was like, please go build like your your writing shack right. so that we can get these books out of our bedroom. And so uh, it's been a few years, but I was going through all the books and kind of rearranging them. And I, I decided to create a shelf just for books that were written by friends of mine right. or people in the rabbit room community. And there is a, there's an actual like two, sh two shelves of the book shelf oh, wow. are full of either... Um, you know, kind of like compatriots in the in the in this uh, publishing world, or people who are uh, like literally published by the rabbit room. So that so it was evident. It was this cool reminder just right. a few days ago. I was like, oh my goodness, look, it worked. You know, mm. like like I said, planting a flag on the ground and saying, hey, let's get together uh, and hang, have a reason to to encourage one another. Um, and commiserate, you know, about what it's like yeah. to be the struggle of being uh, a writer who is also a Christian and trying to understand how calling works and all that kind of stuff. And then to look back uh, over 12 years and see like there's actually physical like evidence yeah. that this friendship has produced 
better work, mm-hmm. that there are, there are books in the world that would not exist without this community. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself that like there's, um, you know, there are songs that I've written that I would never have written if it, there wasn't a, a friend that I was writing it for. Mm-hmm. And so there's this like, uh, I don't know, there's just something beautiful about the fact that art seems to draw people together. Mm-hmm. And then once it draws those people together, then there's this friendship that ends up feeding more art. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 uh, it's pretty cool. And as far as the way that all, it all overlaps, like, you know, everything from beekeeping to, to, um, I'm, I, I learned how to build dry stone walls. Uh, and so have been doing that on my property a little bit and I'm kind of a wannabe gardener, but in addition to songwriting and, mm-hmm. and, the novel writing and all that kind of stuff. Like there's just this like, uh, there's a lot of um, overlap in the creative process. Like it's all kind of, like when I was building my stone wall for the first time, figure out, figuring out how it worked, I kept thinking this is just like songwriting. Um, we're in a, a building, we're building this uh, this house as a kind of a gathering point for the rabbit room, renovating an old farmhouse. And, uh, and I keep thinking, um, every time I talk to the contractor, I was like, this is so much like making a record. Like you hire a producer, you have a vision, uh, you go, Hey, here are the songs, here are my ideas. But then you know that you can't do it on your own. You need somebody else to step into the creative process with you and make this thing real. And when, by the time you're finished, it looks a little different than what you thought it would, Mm -hmm. but it's better because of the voices of the other people around you. I was like, this is just like, making a record or writing a book and getting your editor to fix it. Uh, It's just like me calling my bee mentor (laughs) and saying, Hey, is it too late to harvest my honey? Like where should, how, how do you do this? Because I need your help. So there's just like, it's like, uh, all of us are these inherently creative creatures Mm. and the, and, and speaking, um, light into the world or filling a blank page with sentences. It's all kind of tapping into this image of godness in us. What have you learned about leadership um, from running the Rabbit Room? And you'd mentioned that you're 10 years in now mm-hmm. for Hutchmoot and the Rabbit Room. What have you learned both about leadership and also training the next generation in leadership succession? Yeah, uh, I have learned uh, uh, <laughs> delegation is the key to leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just yesterday talking to somebody because they um, this uh, this fall I have a, a new book and a new album coming out. And somebody was kind of like, man, I, like I, you're so productive, whatever. And the truth, he said, how do you do that? And I was like, well, really it's not me. It's, it's these wonderful people that I get to work with, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I would have lost my mind years ago if there, if I didn't have my manager, Christy and her team and all these kind of people like taking care of the little things. Um, but, but learning that I can't do everything mm-hmm. has been huge. I'm, I'm a pastor's kid. So my dad um, preached in this little town in the smallest county in Florida, hmm. um, and and uh, our church was yeah. Uh, our church versus the Baptist church in town. Don't tell anybody, you guys. Uh, <laughs> we were the two like biggest churches, which meant there were about 120 people, maybe, right, uh, on a Sunday, and so that meant that my dad did almost everything. Like he did all the weddings, he did did all the funerals, he taught Sunday school, he preached. Hmm hospital calls, all of it. I would watch him and I would just be like, oh my goodness, how does he do this? Right. Um, and then, you know, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that once you get into a habit of doing everything yourself, it's really hard to break the habit. It's really hard to like allow people to bring their own uh, gifting mm. to the thing because you have the sense of, of this is the way that I want it to be. So my brother and I both, my brother's the executive director of the Rabbit Room, and uh, we both talked a lot about how 
um, how we need to be brave enough to allow other people to speak into this vision. Mm. Um, because we do have a pretty strong vision for what we want the rabbit room to be, but we also feel like it's very like embryonic. Like we feel like it's, it's still growing into something that we can't quite see what, if it's a boy right. or a girl yet, you know what I mean? And so, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're trying to like, at the same time, we, we hold to this founding vision. We're also looking at the people that are working with us, the staff that is working there going, okay, in, in 10 or 15 years, I'm going to be kind of tired of doing this, you know? Uh, and how do we steward this in such a way that it can both grow organically and never lose its DNA. And so the, if you're asking how, how to do that, I have no idea. <laughs> but I think the the best place to start is to realize that you have to do it. Right. You know what I mean? And right. so we're, we're not, we're not like functioning under some delusion that we're going to be here forever. Like sure. I, the, the behold the Lamb of God thing is the same way. Like we, this year is our 20th anniversary of the tour and we just re-recorded a brand new version of the record. And that has brought the question, so how long are you going to do this? And I'm like, am I going to be doing this in 20 more years? And uh, I hope not. I, I genuinely, like we're kind of like setting it up in such a way that like I would be, few things would make me happier than to stay at home in a December and have hot chocolate with my wife, knowing that there were the right people continuing this tour without me. You know what I mean? That's right. Um, because the point is the story. The point is not the guy that's telling it. Right, right. Well, there's so many other directions we could go, but I want to jump into the the leadership questions. And the sure. first off is, who are you learning from? And then I would love to hear, as an artist, someone in the creative industry, what artist um, do you look to, and what can our listeners, who can our listeners look yeah. to as wow. examples in this area? Well, um, who am I learning from? Is that the first question? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, that turned um, into that a three part question. Yeah, that can be in any field. Sure. Um, I would say one of the one of the most influential people in the past few years has been Wendell Berry. Mm. Um, I don't agree with everything he says or writes, and um, and he's way hardcore agrarian. Um, and I'm I'm a wannabe farmer, right. but but his emphasis on loving what you've been given is has been huge. Mm. I was actually thinking about this on the way up here. I'm an Anglophile. I I you know. About every day I, I tell my wife, I really just want to be walking footpaths in England. Can we please go to England and walk footpaths? And, uh, and, I, and I realize how silly that is because right. it's, like, it's like being uh, – I've been in Nashville for 22, going on 23 years. And uh, I love this place. I really right. do. Um, and I'm always having to fight this uh, cultural lie that I'll only be happier somewhere else. And Wendell Berry's writing reminds me to kind of like dig dig deep and, and that the richest life that you can live may not be off on the horizon somewhere. It may be like literally the people that you're going to church with right now so, and married to right now. I do love that, uh, that phrase, um, loving what you're given, because that sounds mm -hmm. like a stewardship yeah. issue to me. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Loving um, what and who you're given? Yeah. Well, I mean, marriage is the obvious metaphor. Um there's this great poem by Jeannie Murray Walker called Adam's Choice. And if I had known we were going to go here, I would have looked it up to read it to you because it's beautiful. But look up Adam's Choice by Jeannie Murray Walker. And it kind of describes Adam saying, I didn't choose her. You know, he's mm -hmm. thinking, I didn't ask, you know, uh, I didn't ask, I didn't ask for this, right? And But here she is. And it, the, the end of the poem describes her like running to him through a storm in Eden 
and the, the fear in her face and how he holds her. And he begins the long work of learning to love what he's been given. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you not feel the truth of that, right? right. And I, I think that that's just kind of what the Lord has asked us to do. I mean, with ourselves, with our own gifting, mm-hmm. um, how many times do we look at somebody else's gifting and say, I wish I had that gifting? Right. Um, and so like part and part of it, you know, sometimes, uh, I heard, I learned this from Michael Card. He was talking about calling and he said, your community defines your calling. So if you want to know what your calling is, it may not be the thing that you, you know, when I get bad demos, you hear these, these songs and, you're, and sometimes they're great. And sometimes I think who told this person that songwriting was what they were supposed to do. You know? <laughs> uh, like I, they, they, we do sometimes function. And I have, I'm guilty of having done that before things that I've thought, I really believe that I'm supposed to do this. And then you're just not right? Right. So how do you discern between the two? And, and the, the answer is community. First, you, you ask yourself, um, how, how does my gifting best love the the community that is around me? Mm. Um, not the ideal community, but the people who actually are around me, the people I actually go to church with. And then the other side of that is you listen to your community. Sometimes they're the ones who can see your gifting better than you can. Mm. So you have to trust them. If they say, for example, in my own life, uh, I, have always been afraid of being alone and uh, like kind of just, uh, I like solitude, but like in, in another sense, like I'm, I'm like, I tend, if I'm going to go to a movie, I immediately think, who can I call? Like I'm going right. to, and I'll go down and I'll text some friends, but Hey, you want to go see a movie tonight? And sometimes it ends up being like 15 people show up. Right. Uh, not because I'm special, but because I'm, my desire to not be alone means I, I cast the net wide and right. the more people said yes than I thought. And right. I find myself sitting on a row of friends. And so in that case, the Lord is using my fear of loneliness to bring people together. Right. And I had a friend of mine, Russ Ramsey, he's a pastor here in town. He was like, you know, you're a gatherer of people. Mm-hmm. And I had never th- realized that I, I hadn't occurred. He was like, well, we'll look at behold the lamb, look at the rabbit room, look at, um, these other little corners of your life. Like you tend to gather people together. And I had only ever seen that as a brokenness in myself. I had only ever seen that as like, Oh, one of my big flaws is that I'm afraid to be alone. Mm-hmm. But then the Lord redeems that and it mm-hmm. becomes a gift. So, um, uh, th- I remember there was a season like 15 years ago where my wife and I were, uh, we realized one day that nobody ever invited us over for dinner and we were kind of sad about it. And I was like, why, do, why don't, why doesn't anybody invite? We're, we're the ones who always invite people over for dinner, but it's never reciprocated. And, uh, it kind of made us sad. And at the time we, we believed the lie that like nobody really liked us, whatever, this pathetic kind of stuff. And, uh, we were like, let's just stop inviting people over and see how long it takes before somebody invites us over. And about a year went by. And we would see our friends at church and that kind of thing, but but no dinners. And then finally people started emailing us and saying, when are you guys going to invite us over again? <laughs> They're like, what's wrong? Like we miss seeing everybody. Yeah. Like when are you going to, and that was like the light bulb went on and we were like, oh, not everybody has the hospitality gift. Yes, uh, Jamie is very, a great host. And mm-hmm. so we were like, oh, well, maybe our gift to the community is that we are the gatherers of people, right? right? And this is not that nobody wants to invite us over. It's that maybe their house isn't set up for it or it's just not their wiring. Mm-hmm. But so anyway, the point is your community defines your calling. Your community helps you see how to serve and to love best. And so I don't know how that plays into leadership, but it sure does seem like there's an application. Oh, for sure. I mean, if we had a whiteboard in this room, I would have already created a VIN on creativity, calling, and community, which is basically what you've, what you've done. Which, yeah, that's a, I guess that's the, the whole theme of the book. 
Right. That happens to be the subtitle of the book. Thoughts on community <laughs> hey, calling go. and the mystery of making. Hey, you brought it up so naturally. Can't help but tie it in. His <laughs> new book, Adorning the Dark. The mystery of making, we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, That's sure. right. That's right. <laughs> hey, and by the way, uh, when I saw this book cover, before I even knew it was your book cover, um, I was like, I love that. It is a great cover. Stephen Kratz. Yeah. He did a great yeah, job. he's wonderful. Now, the yeah. only thing, and I know, uh, I know, um, we actually published this book, which That's is right. awesome. Uh, I'm super excited about. And it's I would love available. to see this in hardback. And like a hundred years ago, like just debossed. <laughs> <laughs> and like this cover in hardback, 1920s cool style. Sheets. I remember yeah, uh, Stephen, the guy who did the artwork, he's a wonderful, he's done, uh, he did the, cover of my new of the new behold the lamb record uh-huh. he did the last record the resurrection letters mm-hmm. album and then um i feel like he's done more stuff for me he's just this wonderful artist who really knows the bible really well uh-huh. and um anyway he uh hit the first attempt at a cover he sent a sketch of it and it was so immediately clear that it was yeah. the right one mm-hmm. but the font he actually like lifted the font from an old book of his that was like 100 years ago there so there you go good That's eye cool. man way to go todd i love it yeah <laughs> i love it and the moon glows in the dark I noticed that too. Yeah, oh, I didn't cool. realize that. Did yeah. you know that? That's super cool. Yep. I've had a few people post online that they would had read the book at night yeah. and then turned off their reading was, lamp and yeah. the My book wife's night remains. I love those little book sits. details. That's so cool. Yeah. This is one of those where uh, I get books like almost every day from publishers and publicists and uh, very few of those books make it home. Uh, and when those books make it home, um, occasionally my wife... Um, we'll steal one. And and this one didn't even, I mean, it just, <laughs> it made it to the kitchen counter and then it was gone. And I, when I found it, it was it was on her nightstand. But she's the one that pointed out to me, hey, the moon glows. That's, That's so cool. cool. All right. So um, cool. Let's move to our second question because uh, we're already 20 minutes in and we do have five questions. So what's the main point of emphasis uh, in you leading your team and or community right now? Like what's what's the main point of emphasis for you? The main point of emphasis. Can you rephrase the question? Mm, I could go back to original five LQ, which was what's the what are the main obstacles you're facing and how are you the main obstacle the for me I, I could say the main obstacles I'm facing are um, it's the fact that I am spinning too many plates. Like the the hardest thing is that I've got too many things going on. The rabbit room is just one of those things, um, and but they all. They're all uh, tied into each other. Um, And so uh, there have been plenty of times when, like staff meeting is Monday morning. But I also get in from tour a lot of Monday mornings at 7 a.m. or whatever from a flight. Or Sunday night, you know, because I I travel on many weekends. And so uh, sometimes shifting gears from being a performer um, to sitting in a boardroom. Uh, looking at like a marker board full of like, mm-hmm. you know, the projects that we have coming out of like a, it's like trying to turn the Titanic around. Mm-hmm. Like I, like mindset wise, it's hard well, for me to. Well, you know, what's interesting is you're, it, for those that are listening, a lot of them are pastors and church leaders or mm-hmm. they're business leaders uh, that are just happen to be listening. Um, but especially on the pastor side, I would guess a lot of them feel the same way on Monday morning. I bet they right. do. Yeah. Because. 
you know, while Oof. we wouldn't say, hey, this is a performance, uh, it, it is at the very least a presentation that you put a lot into, right. uh, a lot of emotion into, mm -hmm. a lot of your uh, self into. Um, and so then they're moving from that to now leading um, the next day. Yep. Or yeah. those business travelers like Todd and I both travel a lot for work. You way more than me, Todd, but staying grounded and coming back um, and kind of navigating that um, tension that you mentioned between being away on tour mm -hmm. over the weekend or if you're on a business trip, just trying to mm -hmm. stay grounded, stay connected to the people on your team. Yep. Keep up with all of the wheels that you have spinning. I don't know how you do it all, but that's a really tough reality for yeah, a lot of it people. Yeah, it's not easy. And, and it's like... Uh, I can tell you a little anecdote that it was helpful to me that I'm trying to find the right balance right. Um, between being a grown up because you right. know that's the thing is like uh, <laughs> you, you got, sometimes you just got to like show up please at the staff don't meeting. Say <laughs> <laughs> or, Cut that, please. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, I know your age, but please don't say adult. But to to show up <laughs> or like you know if I'm out of town on a Monday to find the 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 motivation to like, you know, FaceTime into the meeting and be right. present to this thing. Like it's crucial that you have to be, just be there sometimes. Right. Um, but at the same time, realizing that the th whole thing doesn't rest on your shoulders as a leader. And so I think, and this is the anecdote I was talking about. I, um, I think I mentioned this in the book, but the, uh, behold the lamb, you know, we do this one main show in Nashville. We're on tour all, all, December, but then there's the the big show is the one that's in Nashville because we have extra friends show up to play at right. it and our families are in the audience and we want to do good. And, and, uh, so it's always a lot more stressful and it's at the Ryman auditorium. So it's like, there's this kind of like history yeah. of the, of the room. You, you're like, man, we're, we got to put, put on our best performance, whatever. And so, uh, one year and it was always so stressful trying to MC the show, remember all my own lyrics, like make sure everybody's happy. And, uh, and my, my, um, daughter, who's a wonderful singer and songwriter, she, um, when she was like 11, she was like, Papa, can I sing with you at the Ryman? Which, you know, the, the, the duh answer is, well, of course, if your daughter wants to sing with you. But immediately I was just like, oh man, I got to make her happy now too. You know, I got to like, think about how, making sure that she's like you know, emotionally okay for the, and I told her one time I, when I told, when I said no, uh, that one of the years that she did it, I was like, you, you don't understand. Like, I, I'm not just trying to make you happy. I'm trying to make 40 band members happy mm. and I'm not just trying to make them happy. I'm trying to make 2000 audience members oh, happy. Yeah. So like that little tiny straw that broke the camel's back right. is like, that's why I'm freaking out right now. Right. So, so all that to say, that uh, one year, um, and I'm also saying that is not the way it's supposed to be because I got sick one year and uh, the night before the Ryman show and I remember like, you know, throwing up or something and thinking, how in the world am I going to do the show tomorrow? Like, I don't, I can't even stand up right now. Right. And, uh, and the, as I was lying there shivering in my bed, praying about it all, I was like, well, if so-and-so sang that song, I guess they know those words. And if I, if I'm not there, then so-and-so can play my guitar part. And, and by the time I went down the list of my duties, I realized I was not necessary to the show. Like right. I could not be there and it would be fine. And, uh, and I was like, well, that's a relief. You know, I think if I was a younger man, I would have felt a little bit, you know, affronted by that. I'd been like, no, I must be more important. But I really did feel like what a, what a wonderful blessing it is to know that this thing would go off without me. And so, 
Uh, I ended up being well enough to do the show, but I remember doing the show with a freedom that I had never done before because mm -hmm. I knew that I was not the most important. I wasn't the, the a cog that was holding it all together. I was able to just be part of the gang mm -hmm. and be like, well, I have this role here and I'm thankful for it, but if I'm not here, it would be... So, so it was more like God wanted me there instead mm -hmm. of he needed me there. And it, what, a, cool. what a better, you know... Um, mindset to, to do our work from is that he wants us. Absolutely. What are a couple things that you do daily um, that you absolutely must do and what benefit do they have mm. for your life? Mm. Caveat, other than spiritual disciplines. I thought okay. you were going to say beekeeping. Yeah. It's like, what's your favorite <laughs> book other than, other than the Bible? Um, breakfast. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I'm I'm big on breakfast. Like I I uh, I get so excited about breakfast. <laughs> That's just That's the thing. Awesome. So, so um, and I didn't used to be this way. I used to be a night owl, and mm -hmm. most of my songs were written, you know, in, at four in the morning. Um, but I, that's just completely changed. I think being moving to the country and right. having having a property to take care of has changed that. But I just treasure the morning. Like if I don't have like a, a long runway before I have to start my day, right. then I'm cranky for the whole day. So that's a big thing. Um, I, I one thing that is that has been really helpful is that I don't charge my phone next to my bed. Mm -hmm. Like my the charger is in another room. It's in the that's laundry smart. room. Um, so the last thing I see before I go to sleep is not a phone. It's my, this the book that I'm reading. Right. Um, and uh, you said no spiritual disciplines, but one thing that I, 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 I try to like hold on to um, is that the first thing that I see in the morning is not my phone. It's, it's the Bible. And so I try to ma make myself go, okay, don't, you're not going to look at email. You're not going to do anything like the first thing that you're going to see when you wake up is going to be after the, the, uh, the, uh, huevos con chorizo that I've just made mm, for breakfast, um, good. is going to be the Bible. So, uh, yeah, those are, those are some of the little things. And also just getting outside, uh, like I, um, there's this guy named Arthur Boers who I met one time who wrote a book called living into focus. And, um, and he talks about focal practices that then in, in an age of technology, one way that we kind of like keep our humanness is that we we have to have focal practices and a focal practice as he describes it is it connects you with creation and wonder kind of like god through creation it connects you to other people it takes discipline um there's like a list of things and when when i was reading the book i kept thinking about beekeeping i was like oh that explains why i went bonkers for beekeeping <laughs> is because i spent so much of my life staring at a screen yeah. and like right. looking at a blank page. It's very cerebral. Like mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that you're doing is in, in your head. But then the, like beekeeping forced me to every day go out and look at something that God made and not something that I made. So, um, you know, they say that there's two books of revelation, there's scripture and there's nature. So like, if you want to know what God is like, you read your Bible, but also you pay attention to the world that he made. Right. And, uh, and so, so many of us, especially in the internet age, if we're in any kind of corporate situation, we don't have, we don't have a focal practice. Mm -hmm. And so I can't say enough how important it is to, to have a, a, a part of your life, a significant part of your life be, um, something that gets your hands dirty. Mm, that's good. That is good. We should talk about trees later. <laughs> All right. I'm game. <laughs> Rootstocks, various uh, heirloom varieties of apples and pears. To go Indeed. with your bees, of course. I know, right? I would love to hear why I have never been able to get a single apple from my apple tree. I can help you with that. Yeah, thank you. All right. Um, 
I, I did have a very important question. What is the best breakfast that you've ever had? Tell me the story. <laughs> the best breakfast that I've ever had? Let me think about so you're that. You're a breakfast guy. That's I'm right. very much a breakfast guy. Um, I'm thinking about breakfast that I've ever had. Like, I can think of favorite meals. Favorite um, meal or, you know, I yeah. was walking a path. I was walking one of the paths <laughs> in England and I came back to the bed and breakfast. Like, yeah, I mean, that kind of uh, – English breakfasts are not very good. I'm just going to say for the really? record. Kind of, they, it's like pork and beans and sausage <laughs> oh, and it's just the, the heaviest, grossest thing. Um, so <laughs> not that. But the uh, – wow, the best break. Honestly, like the, when I – what I usually do at home and this is uh, whatever uh, I, is I go and I buy a pound of chorizo. Uh, we love Mexican food in our yeah. house. We eat it almost every day. And so I, I brown a pan of chorizo and I keep it in a Tupperware dish. And so then I, I would just warm it up, put it in the frying pan and crack two eggs over it and eat it in a tortilla with some cheese. And I, that is, those are my best days. I didn't do it today. It's a great start to the day. Which if that's why I'm not making any sense, it's because I didn't have my huevos oh, con chorizo. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's Please brutal. don't blame us yeah. for that. <laughs> I do have um, one more question. What does a leader, for those listening, what do we need to be reading to become a better storyteller? What books would you point us to? Well, I think uh, in general, novels. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, um, it's funny. I've I've thought a lot about like what makes me so drawn to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and guys like Walt Wongren Jr. and – uh, who else? Madeline Langle, George MacDonald. They're, like there's this school of, you know, old, old men and women who've been writing for years, most of whom are dead and, uh, who, whose books have this staying power, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Right. And I've been like, what, what is it about those books that kind of like keeps them around? And I think it's that, um, if you take C.S. Lewis as an example, he wasn't only a theologian, he was a novelist. Like he actually, was a student of storytelling and tried to write children's novels till we have faces, space trilogies, science fiction stuff. And those things were published not by the local Christian publisher. They were published by legit publishers because right. they were they were writers. They took writing very seriously. And so it just kind of made me go. So, so when I wrote my own books, I was thinking, um, which are, by the way, a long way from C.S. Lewis. Um, but but uh, when I was writing them, I there is something that you can only know about the mind of God um, there, how do I put this? Cause I don't want to make it sound like I'm special, but like r- fighting your way through a novel, like, uh, inventing a story and carrying a couple of characters through a few thousand pages of story and bringing them to a conclusion that is satisfying is a way of knowing something about God. Mm. Kind of like in the way that like a mathematician solving a long form thing, like marvels at the way God's mind works. Right. I think a novelist is the same way from a storytelling standpoint. Like there was something about, um, having these characters who I had, I knew the end of January could be story to a point. Um, and I knew that I had this character at the beginning of the story and the only way for him to grow into who I wanted him to grow into was suffering. Mm. I knew that I was going to have to send him on an, an adventure that was going to cause him pain. And, uh, and to allow the story to shift, to change, that Janer has some agency while you're writing, right. there's this weird feeling of like, well, the story wants, quote unquote, to be this 
thing that is different than what I expected. So you allow it, you know, to follow and then it surprises you. Like the, the author of the story himself is surprised by where the story ended up. And yet I never lost sight of the end of the story, you know, which theologically from a predestination free will standpoint is like a <laughs> total mind trip, right? So I understood something about God as the storyteller and how suffering works because, because of fighting my way through a story. Mm-hmm. So all that to say that like, um, when I meet a pastor that says he doesn't have time for fiction, I think, Hmm, I wonder what his sermons are like. Mm-hmm. Um, because our hearts are wired to respond to stories. Like there's something about, um, being I, like, I guarantee CS Lewis's theology was shaped by the fact that he had written novels, which makes me go. I just actually wrote a note to Tim Keller who I don't know. Um, but I sent him a copy of adorning the dark. Mm-hmm. And in the thing I was like, I can't wait to read your novel. I can't wait to read your, your fantasy novel. Um, because like you've got this, you know, heady theology, but let's see what it, what it does to your theology to to immerse yourself in the way stories work. Um, it's like the difference between looking at the the Bible as just theology versus this grand narrative, the main character of which is Jesus. That's good. That's real. It's good. a great challenge. All right, so um, let's go into our fourth question, which is, what's leadership in your home look like? Uh, it looks like, um, apologizing a lot. Um, it's like, uh, yeah, learn learning, not, not only to apologize when you've royally messed up, but, uh, but realizing that, that at some point, um, my role as a parent is to learn from my children as much as it is to teach them. So what's, what's, uh, what's that look like or what's a story? Um, let me think of a story that you would give us. Um, I don't, I don't know that I've got a ready anecdote for this, but things like, uh, you know, I, one of the most enjoyable parts of being a parent, which, which you may resonate with is getting to curate the movies that your kids watch when they're little, you know, and as they grow and kind of going like, oh man, I cannot wait for them to see Empire Strikes Back and like see their minds blown when the big turn happens. Or, you know, for me, it was Braveheart. I just couldn't wait for my kids to see Braveheart. So when they were five, I was like, Jamie, can I show them Braveheart? (laughs) That's not true. I'm joking. Uh, But, but there was this real joy in getting to share music. And same thing with albums. Like I, I I sit them down and be like, let me play you this Tom Petty record and (laughs) help you see why it's so great, you know, and to expose them to all the shape, their imaginations, Right. right. With all this stuff. And the cool thing was about when they were like in their teens, um, we all share one iTunes like family account or whatever. Right. And to see them adding songs and albums that they had found that I had never heard of. And suddenly I'm, I'm going like, wait, 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 what is this band? Like, what is this music? You know? And now my kids are like, they're, they see it, they take it seriously. They're like, Papa, you need to listen to this album now. And they're kind of like teaching me about like the music that is happening mm-hmm. in the world. So I think there's, there's something really cool about you know, it, just a little uh, PSA for everybody at home. If your kids are playing music in the house for you to hear, it's because they want you to know something about their hearts. Um, music is like this wonderful way for us to identify with something. Like if, if, if a kid gravitates to a certain kind of music, I, my hunch is that there's something about that music that is resonating with their heart. And if they're playing it, 
Um, even if they're like, you may not like this stuff, but I'm just going to let you know that I want you to enjoy this with me, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't really get to do that with my parents. I think yeah. generationally, um, there was a, there's a difference between people my age and uh, my parents' age. But like, there's a true joy in getting to like stand and enjoy, go to a concert, like to take my son to see Bon Iver and to both sit there crying because mm-hmm. the music is so beautiful and to share that really intimate thing. So the point is, it started with me saying, let me teach you about the Bible. Let me expose you to these stories. Mm-hmm. And then now my son teaches Sunday school and uh, and he has he has helped me to see who Jesus is and in the most amazing ways. And I think that's going to continue. I think I'm going to like decrease as they increase. Like I'm going to try to keep uh, myself in a posture of learning now instead of just teaching. That's so good. That is really good. In a similar vein, what would you tell, what would you go back and tell your 20 year old self about preparing to lead and preparing (laughs) for where you are now? Uh, That's actually an easy one. Um, When I think (laughs) about myself at 20, I roll my eyes um, I see this kind of audacious, arrogant kind of, I don't even know. I can't get into it, but the, uh, but I do know that, um, a few years ago, and I want to say this without coming across wrong, but a few years ago I was at a concert and this guy came up to me and he said, um, he was like, man, I've been wanting to meet you, um, between the books and the music and the, the, ministry and the whatever the touring and the other stuff that the plates that I spin he was like how in the world do you do do it all and as I kind of like laughed it off and was like oh well blah 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 I had this this like what I think was the Holy Spirit kind of like prick my conscience and and uh and I realized that I felt cool Mm -hmm. when he said that I like I liked I enjoyed the fact that he was impressed by me and, uh, and I felt this like horrifying, like recoiling in me. I was like, Ugh, is that, is that who I want to be? Do I want to be as some guy who, who is motivated by his desire to impress or, uh, to, to kind of like leave my mark on the world. And around that time, I remembered this Rich Mullins quote, which is if, if your ambition is to leave a legacy, what you will leave is a legacy of ambition. Mm. And wow. that also was convicting and kind of horrifying to me. So I'm very, very thankful that God kind of like got my attention in that moment. And, and I began to realize, um, that a lot of my, over the last 20, however many, five years of my music career and writing career, um, how many of the, the things that I've made or the decisions that I've made have been based on a combination of two things, ambition and fear, like fear that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family, mm-hmm. fear that I'm maybe a nobody fear that whatever, so I've got to make a record or I've got to write a song to kind of prove that I exist or ambition to like leave a mark. And neither of those things are born of the spirit, right? Those things are both like uh, sinful. And and so I would rather, I would tell my 20 year old self, um, before you say yes to recording an album or signing a record deal or going on tour or doing these things, ask yourself, is this the Holy Spirit calling you to something or is this you trying to provide when God is your only provider? Or is this you try, not like, you know, obviously we, we man up and we try to provide, but like you can't lose sight of the fact that we've only ever had one provider as a friend of mine says. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, like, like as I, now I'm 45 and I'm, I'm still learning, but I am trying to do better, uh, at, um, when, when an opportunity arises, whether it's a concert or a, a speaking engagement to ask myself, 
am I going to say yes to this because I'm afraid that I don't have enough or because I'm trying to prove myself or because I think this is what God wants me to do this weekend. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Um, and it's been helpful. That's very helpful. Why? One of my questions I wanted to ask you is that for those that, um, that are listening, they might look at someone like you and say, well, that's great. Like I don't see myself as I may not work in the creative industry. I don't see myself as very creative. I'm not a musician. Um, and I like the quote in your book where you say, we're all creative. There is no creative class. Um, so what would you say to those listening that look at you and they're like, okay, he has more creativity in his pinky than I have in my whole body. What, how do, what do I do? What do I, what's my first step sure. to cultivating that creativity? That's really a reflection of our image. Yeah. Well, the first group. thing I would do is by adorning the dark, my new book Great um, plug. and read it cover to cover and post Second about it on that. Instagram. <laughs> a box of crayons. No, uh, that's right. Buy it 10 actually. Buy it <laughs> yeah. Christmas presents. I mean, <laughs> well, that's, it's kind of a complicated answer because the, the main, the, 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 uh, the reason it galls me a little bit is because just like maybe five or six years ago, I started noticing people refer, referring to, um, themselves as creatives. Mm. And I just can't stand it. I'm sorry, but some people <laughs> kind of roll their eyes now because it's become a soapbox for me. But but it implies that there are these people that are especially creative and that they're they're um, in, a, in their own cl- tier. Right. I am a creative, mm-hmm. but you're not, right? That's the subtext. And I just like vehemently disagree with that. Yeah. Like every single human being is an image bearer yeah. and part of the image of God is creativity. Yeah. That's one that's one of the, that's the first thing that uh, God, I'm, Genesis 1, 1, it's like, this is part of who God is. He is a creator. And Tolkien in, uh, in his essay on fairy stories, he talks about, he's talking about storytelling, obviously, but the, um, he coins the word sub creator. He said, God is the creator with a capital C. The rest of us in his image are sub creator, little creators. Mm. And so it's like, Every single human being is is always building a kingdom, I think, um, and we we submit that creative impulse to to Christ and build His kingdom, right? And so we submit our imaginations to Him. We submit our uh, our time and and our our um, desire to leave a name. We move that underneath His lordship, and now we're going. Okay, my my main goal is to build His kingdom yeah. and to create in His name. Right. For his sake, and so, so my so my point is, uh, I'm kind of rabbit trailing a little bit here, but the but my wife, as an example, and I write about this in the book, does not think of herself as an artist. She just happened to marry into this crazy Nashville world where me and all my friends like to talk about poetry and novels and blah blah blah. And sometimes she feels a little left out because mm-hmm. you know. I, she honestly <laughs> wouldn't know who I was if we weren't married. So just, she's, she loves, when I get in the car, it's like club beats, you know, she's not listening to <laughs> I like, like, her. I like yeah, her. yeah, I like her too. She's great. And so anyway, she, uh, sh- don't tell me my wife is not creative. That's part of why I get defensive because I, when you walk into our house, um, it always smells good. She has this compulsion to make all of our lives more beautiful. She can't help it. She's always, for years, she would rearrange the furniture in the living room. Every weekend I'd come home and the couch would be in a different place because she was always looking for the best, the best way to make this house welcoming to people and hospitable. That is all a part of the creative impulse that we, we carry. And I, my friend, Jonathan Rogers says that like the, the, the arts only make up a a slice of the pie of what human creativity is, that Mm -hmm. cooking a meal, 
preaching a sermon, uh, teaching a class, like whatever it may be, all of these things are, are inherently creative. So there are, there is no creative class. We're all, and I just think that it changes the way, like if a pastor thought of what, of sermon writing as a creative act, if a mom thought of Wednesday night dinner as a creative act, then it might shift the the way that they think of their own calling. Mm, that's really good. I mean, I love the fact that you, uh, that would, that's one of my pet peeves as well. Um, in, in understanding that, you know, creativity often comes through constraint and, you know, encouraging people not to, because when, when you say I am creative, you're saying I'm special and you don't understand. It certainly can be that. Yes. And that's, um, that, that's something that can be really destructive and disruptive. Um, when I think one of the best things that art, artists can do is to be a part of a local church that is does not have a lot of artists. Like we do need community. I really, I, I know that I need a community of people who, who uh, you know, there is something like about an artist or a songwriter, some things that only another songwriter will understand. Mm-hmm. So it's good to have those people in your life. But man, it's wonderful to be a part of a community where what you do is no bigger of a deal than anybody else, you know. Humbling, but also it's puts it in perspective. Wonderfully humbling, yeah. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I have friends that friends that uh, told that did not listen to my music for like the first five years of our friendship mm-hmm. because they needed to be friends enough with me to tell me they didn't like it if they didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So they were like, "Yeah, I didn't want to like have to lie and like hurt your feelings, so I yeah. didn't listen to your music. I just wanted to know you." That's, first. That's Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's, that's great. Good. And then they were like, "To my great relief, when I finally listened, they they didn't hate it." You know, so um, <laughs> anyway. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming in and being with us today. Uh, And thank you guys for listening. Please hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. But before you do that, um, check out The Rabbit Room. Check out uh, andrewpeterson.com. If Andrew-Peterson.com, sorry. Oh, that is right. Yeah, there's a guy that writes like espionage thrillers. (laughs) That's not Not to be confused with that, Andrew Peterson. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you go there, you'll see Behold the Lamb, not the latest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, If you see a machine gun, that's not (laughs) (laughs) You're in the wrong place. (laughs) So good. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys. Every church must be equipped to respond well in the initial stages when learning about instances of sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. And that's why the Southern Baptist Convention, Lifeway, and ERLC partner together to create Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. This training curriculum consists of a handbook, 13 uh, enhanced video sessions that brings together top experts from various fields to help volunteers and leaders understand and implement the best practices for handling a variety of abuse scenarios at church, school, or in your ministry. You can access these videos and this training and this book all for free at churchcares.com.